Hello, everyone, and welcome to She Said, She Said, and to 2021's very first hashtag eye candy show. Hmm, what's the hashtag eye candy show, you ask? Well, it's a podcast in which we celebrate and honor Internet movers and shakers who are ideal. They are incredible men and women, people who are interesting, innovative, and iconic, hence, I candy. I'm Lena Stagg, your co-host on She Said, She Said, and I'm the author of the Recipe Record series of rock and roll cookbooks full of good food, good fun, and great rock and roll stories, rock facts, and trivia. And you also get some incredible song lists to enjoy as you prepare each delicious, easy-to-make recipe. I like to think of the books as a fun Saturday night enclosed in a paper book. (laughs) It's a fun way to enjoy music, enjoy food, and enjoy each other. So check out the recipe record series on lanastag.com, and while you're there, follow the link to my latest rock blog, which is www.rockblocks3.blogspot.com. It's hot off the press and has great recipes from my book. Um, It's all waiting for you at lanastag.com. Hey, guys. I'm Jude Sutherland-Kessler, author of the John Lennon series, Lena's trusty sidekick. The John Lennon series, in case you haven't had a chance to check it out, is a highly researched, documented narrative history detailing the life of John. And, of course, if you're going to talk about John, you have to include his mates, the Beatles. It's going to be a nine-volume series that follows John's life really almost day by day, Uh, Volumes 1 through 3 are sold out in physical form, but you can still get them on any, any ebook format. And Volume 4, Should Have Known Better, which is the fast-paced story of the Beatles in 1964, is also on ebook, but I do have a few physical copies of those left for those of you who are book collectors. You can go to johnlennonseries.com and you can read sample chapters from each one of the books and check it out. And while you're there, just as Lena suggested, you can sign up for my newsletter, which is nah, about bi-monthly really. And you know, we will keep you posted on what's going on as we get closer and closer to the release of Volume 5, which will be out in August of 2022. That's just like 16, 18 months away. We are so close. But the big news of today, and I totally have butterflies because this is a really, really special guest that we have. He is one of the best, right, Lena? Absolutely. Absolutely. He is an accomplished bass player who in the early 1970s was rocking the scene in New York City with an edgy, politically involved, rough and ready bar band called Elephant's Memory. And this extremely popular group, including lead guitarist Tech Gabriel and organist Adam Ippolito and saxophonist Stan Bronstein, along with our very gifted guest today, came to the attention of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. That is right. The reputation of Elephant's Memory Band was so outstanding that John Lennon reached out to them and asked them 
if they'd be interested in sitting down and talking with him about a new project that he had in mind. Can you imagine that you are so proficient and good and talented in what you do that John Lennon reaches out to you? I love that. I so love that. That's crazy. John was on the eve of creating what is my very favorite Lennon solo LP sometime in New York City. And I love it because, look, I'm very politically minded, and this album stood up very courageously for the rights of men, women, and children across the globe. And it was an album that, that wasn't afraid to speak out boldly for issues such as women's rights and prison reform and the independence of Ireland from Great Britain. But to make this album as commanding as John and Yoko wanted it to be, they knew that they needed a strong, powerful backing band who would create the kind of musical impact that John's lyrics were going to have. And that band was Elephant's Memory. And their bass player, who's with us today, is none other than the extremely kind, very affable, off-the-charts talented Mr. Gary Van Syok. We are, as they used to say on Saturday Night Live back in the 70s, we are verglimped. We are over the moon to have Gary with us. So, Gary, welcome to She Said, She Said. Oh, I'm so glad to be with you folks tonight. Uh, it's an honor here with two accomplished writers like yourselves. It's uh, it's really a pleasure. Looking forward oh, to it. I'm sure you have some excited. questions for me. We do. <laughs> We do, both of us do. Lena is a really a music expert. You know, I, I'm just the John girl, but she is really a music person, so I know she can't wait. But I'm going to jump in, and then we'll let her uh, ask you some questions as well. But, you know, Gary, about a week ago, you and I sat down to chat for uh, a piece that I'm writing about you for Culture Sonar Magazine next month. And that interview was so great. Well, I, you were just, you said so many wonderful things that I thought, we've got to let people listen to you talk instead of just read that short article. So we wanted to hear the story from you personally of your days with John Lennon. So if you're ready to roll, we're ready to roll. Oh, we're ready. Okay. Where shall I start? Well, let's start first and foremost with the great true tale. You know, they say that history is stranger than fiction. Well, it's also more wonderful than fiction. So tell us the true story of how you came to work with the Lennons and, and how the Plastic Ono Elephant's Memory Band was formed. All right. Well, we'll start like around 1968 when I was uh, a studio musician in New York, as all of the elephants really did that during the day. A lot of people, you know, refer to us as a street band, but we all made our living doing uh, TV and uh, radio jingles during the day, most of us. And so in 68, I started uh, hearing about the Elephant's Memory Band doing political benefits at NYU, and they were playing outside at, the, you know, at the uh, Washington uh, Square Park. And, you know, they were, and the Village Voice just covered all of that stuff back in that day so well. And that was my main rag in those days, you know, because I would get gigs from it, like week-long engagements and, you know, in the personal ads and in the back. They had a lot of musician stuff going on. A lot of people getting gigs in the Village Voice. So I was really tuned in on Elephants and uh, and quite uh, and taken with their political stance, as a lot of people were really getting into that at that time. So... Uh, 
lo and behold, uh, I didn't realize, I kept looking into the band, and they had done the soundtrack to Midnight Cowboy, mm-hmm. uh, the Dustin Hoffman movie, and had a gold record for that, and uh, and had a hit single on uh, their own on Metromedia Records called Mongoose. It was like top 40 uh, in Cashbox and Billboard. So I knew the band was about to make some noise. So uh, one day I saw an ad in The Voice, and lo and behold, it was the elephants were actually looking for a baseball player, and they had what they call a cattle call, where they basically say, anybody in New York that's around, come on down. So I showed up for uh, that cattle call audition, and there were, I think there were over 60 bass players there. But later I found out that they kind of had been scouting me anyway, so I kind of got shoved up to the last top six or whatever, uh, just based on my credentials as a studio musician in New York. And I had been on Columbia Records in a band called Pig Iron. So they knew who I was. You know, New York was a lot smaller town back then, especially with musicians. And uh, so I got the audition with Elephants and uh, started doing a lot of those political type things. And uh, it came December of 71, and we did a live radio broadcast out on Long Island at a station called L- uh, WLIR, and it's where you go in and you would play like a set, half-hour set on cassette. And, you know, they would give you a, a cassette copy to take home, and somehow that cassette got into a, a, one of our political buddies, uh, Jerry Rubin's hands. And uh, he had been hanging out with John. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't really know it at the time. But uh, So Jerry Rubin, the political a- activist, one of the Chicago Seven, uh, is uh, responsible for getting that uh, demo tape of Elephants to, to John and Yoko. And they heard the tape. They loved it. They, they thought we had a lot of soul, apparently Jerry told us. And uh, they, we had... Just the right ingredients, uh, as uh, Lena has this, uh, you know, her uh, her candy and her uh, cake recipes and all of the stuff from the 60s, which I'm anxious to, to try, by the way. 60s is, food is my thing. But uh, I get off track here. They're sorry. Uh, anyway, we uh, decided to uh, meet with John because uh, of Jerry Rubin's connection. And one night we were rehearsing in a studio called Magnographics on Bedford Street in the village. And our roadies came in and said, John and Yoko are outside. They want to come in and talk and maybe play. Oh, my gosh. We we thought they were kidding. You know, I mean, I I had seen John around uh, the neighborhood, you know, previous to that a couple times. uh, They were living. I just made the move over to Bank Street, which is really just just a jump from where we were rehearsing, just around the corner, literally. And uh, so I would see him at the Korean Deli once in a while, but I just never had the kahunas to go over and, you know, introduce myself as a member of Elephant's Memory. I kind of thought he knew who we were, but uh, I didn't want to take it for granted. So uh, anyway, back to the studio, he comes in. Mm. Uh, After we kept him waiting for an hour, he comes in in that white suit from Abbey Road, and my jaw just dropped. (laughs) Wow. It was was just, uh, is this happening? Oh, my God. Wow. So it was, even though we kind of had a 
a little bit of an inkling that it could happen. It, when it happened, it was just, you know, it was off the charts. So uh, he he loved it. He We had an extra guitar. He wanted to play. He hadn't played in probably months and months and months. And uh, we didn't know whether he was going to be able to keep up. But after about an hour, he... He got those old beetle chops back, and he was he was <laughs> definitely keeping up with us, and we were rocking. Oh, so my God. You know, all the old stuff. Like, we played Dizziness Lizzie and all oh. the Chuck Berry tunes, mm. and we were just having a ball. You know, our fingers were getting tired. So I think it was about 4 or 5 in the morning <sighs> when John pipes up and says, I'd like to join your band. Oh. Oh. We just looked at each other and said, <laughs> It was just, you just couldn't believe what you were hearing, you know. Uh, and we wow. didn't want to, like, laugh in his face or anything, but, you know, we just were kind of going, how the heck is this going to happen? You know, so, so anyway, after hashing it around for about uh, another half hour or so, and uh, we got down to reality, and Yoko said, why don't we do a merger? And uh, she had already come up with the Plastic Ono P.O., E.M., Elephant's Memory. Hey, that's that spells poem. <laughs> she was just really into it. You know how Yoko yeah. is. She's a, all with the numerology stuff, and she figured right. out that John and I were both number nines, and she was going on and on. But oh. uh, So we had to take it seriously. You know, we were kind of in a situation wow. where we had to tell John, you know, we're, we're really tied down with this uh, Metro Media Records right now. We're trying to get out of our contract. And he just looked at us and says, don't worry about it. Wow. <laughs> so I kind of got the feeling he felt he had some weight behind him in a certain area. Some leverage? Really <laughs> that's funny. But, uh, so that's how it happened. It was oh quite a night. That's unbelievable. Wow. That's a story that no one else has. I mean, oh, my gosh. he The last time, I don't really know that John ever sought anyone out because Paul came to meet him at the Wilton Garden Fate, and then Paul brought George to meet him. Uh, I don't think John ever sought anyone out. So this is a That's first. an interesting concept. I never thought of it that way, but I guess you're right. Yeah. I mean, I know they – and it was George – it's George and, and um, Paul who wanted Ringo in because John felt like they were, you know, not treating Pete right, and he resisted until he found out that Cynthia was pregnant. And during all that, you know, trying to get ready for the wedding and everything, he said, "All right, you know, fine, 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 bring Ringo in," which was a great. It ended up being a great thing, but he never consciously went out looking for anyone. So that I mean, this is an amazing, amazing story. So he sits down and he tells you about this new LP that Yoko and he want to produce this sometime in New York City. What was his vision for the LP? I think uh, right from the get-go, it wasn't discussed that much that night. It was more, uh, the concept was more brought out at the, like the first couple of rehearsals. Yeah. Uh, they, had, they had a place down on, which coincidentally was on Bank Street also, it's called Butterfly Studios. I think uh, Apple owns a lot of it, and or at least they were leasing it. And uh, it was one of back in the day. They had these. Mo they still do. They have these mobile trucks. So they had a beautiful brand new mobile truck with a 24-track studio in it that backed into this really cool garage. And behind that 
big glass window, there was a studio that was like draped in black burlap from head to toe. I mean, the what? ceiling, the walls, the floor. It was just the most elaborate soundproofed room I've ever seen or heard to this day, really. And uh, so that's where we started rehearsing, and that uh, we got right into it. He, right from the, the get-go, he was explaining to us that he didn't want to take a lot of time like a lot of the Beatle records. He wanted to go in and do this, a record where you just did a song a day. You went in at 6.30, 7 o'clock at night. You heard the song. He knew we could do it because you know, we were yeah. studio players. So... You go in at 6.37, they've already got the drums down. By the way, Rick Frank was the drummer. I think we left his name out there earlier. Sorry, Rick uh, Frank, rest in peace. Uh-huh. Uh, the Elephant's Memory drummer, besides Jim Keltner, who was the Plastic Ono Band drummer, yeah. also joined us. Uh, so we went at 7 o'clock, and you learned the song, and by 7 the next morning, you had gone through the, you know, a couple of takes of the of the track you know the vocals being overdubbed the solos if if there were any and by seven the next morning you basically had a finished record so he was thinking about it like a newspaper mm-hmm. you go in you attack the topic of the day the song of the day and you throw it out on the street so to speak at yeah. seven the next morning like a newspaper it was really very cool, and uh, very you didn't have a lot of time to worry about anything because you were so darn busy trying to get your stuff together. Uh, <laughs> it was quick. It was a quick process. Yeah, yeah. He loved that. He loved extemporaneous. He and Paul used to fight all the time about. He would say to Paul, "You worry a thing to death." You know, he he wanted it to be. He thought rock and roll should be extemporaneous and hot off Definitely. the press. And, you know, that's what you're doing. So now Phil Spector was supposed to be involved in the recording sessions, right? Or, and what happened with that? That is correct. He had, you know, been with John for a while there. Uh, did the, uh, well, anyway, he was supposed to be on call in, in New York for the starting of the record. And he did show up. He was a couple hours late, but he came in and put us uh, his little stubby uh, silver pearl-handled revolver on the board with a half an ounce of cocaine, and oh, I guess that was his announcement lie. that he was he had arrived. Oh, and wow. I got to tell you, dude, and Renee, he he just hated us. I mean, you could it was so obvious really? from the get-go that he did not like us at all. Mm. He was looking down his nose at us. I I think you know he thought that John was a fool to to not be with the the A crowd anymore, so to speak, with, you know, Klaus and uh, Warman on bass and Eric and the crew, uh, you know, that they took to the Toronto Peace Festival. And uh, but it got to be too jet-setty for him. He mm-hmm. really was looking forward to getting together with a band that was a band. So uh, Phil didn't like it, but John was into it. So the first night, the first song was Sunday Bloody Sunday. And, you know, what a tremendous way to to hit it off. I mean, everybody was on all cylinders. We were excited to get going, and it's such an exciting song. And You know, uh, Sunday Bloody Sunday had just happened a couple weeks, you know, a matter of weeks before. Yeah. I think it was January 30th of that year. 
uh, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not an expert on the dates and stuff, but uh, so that was really a hot topic. You know, whereas Attica State that we did a couple of nights later was that was in the previous September, I believe, of '71. Yeah. So that one had been festering a while, but John just hated anything, you know, that where there was oppression of any kind. You know, I, I talked about him several times. We'd have just discussions, you know, when we were tuning up and stuff. He'd be talking about, he'd always have his lyric sheet there and always making changes uh, up until the last second, you know. Um, so he was really into those uh, the Irish stuff, for sure, oh, yeah. which I'm sure we'll talk about. And uh, But Sunday Bloody Sunday was uh, the first first Irish topic that we that we took up and uh, just a great song you know yeah. uh, with the military the English uh, mock uh, military drums in the beginning you know and, you know, put you in that mood you could just feel the the English marching down the streets of uh, Dublin or well actually it was Derry wasn't mm-hmm. it yep and uh, so anyway that was a great way to started off it was in the key of b minor uh just had a kind of a an awesome darkness to it you know uh tell me the truth is what that track is all about you know yeah uh he didn't didn't feel too good about the english on that one no <laughs> which is rightfully so you know yeah they... terrible when 13 people killed and shot down in the streets i mean come on yeah and most yeah, of them were running good. away. You know, they grabbed them by the hair and pulled exactly. them back and shot them. And they were not armed. Terrible. Yeah. Despicable. Yeah, it was, it was oh. a horrible, horrible, it, it was totally a peaceful protest with mothers walking hand in hand with their children, old men in suits and ties, and to just open fire on them. The, the um, first para regiment, one para, they called them, just opened fire on them and shot them down. I guess uh, John got his licks in, though. I mean, that's a song that's, uh, you know, it's for the forever. Uh, that'll be, and you know, he wrote that in those lyrics and pretty much set everybody straight on what happened. So that's, uh, yeah. I felt good about that. I, I got to appreciate, you know, both of uh, Lene and Jude, I, I got to appreciate the lyrics a lot more after I had made the record. You know, because you're just so busy just taking care of business that you just don't really have a, a chance to really, yeah. con- especially when he's writing them right. the night before. <laughs> if you're hearing them for the first time, you know, you don't have a lot to, I couldn't get too deep on it, you know, until years later, probably. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm proud to have played on that. And luck are the Irish, as far as that goes, if we're sticking with the Irish stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, luck of the Irish is just a great comment. And I, I had a lot of musical uh, things about the luck of the Irish that I was astounded by at the time. First, when I first heard it, I says, this is kind of corny. And then I got to listen to it more, and I realized that he was actually playing in a in a field that's called a double jig. And it, it feels like 3-4, and a lot of people think it's in 3-4, but it's actually 6-8. In other words, it's like wow. 1, 2, 3, 4 of us. So the chords change every six beats. Wow. And, you know, where a waltz would change every three. I know I'm getting too technical mm-hmm. here, but... Now, but what's that called again? A double what? Jig. Jig. Irish jig. 
Oh, okay. the double jig because it's just a lot of jigs are just in three four. You know? uh-huh. And uh, so anyway, that that was a that was another tribute to the elephants to be able to pick that up right off the bat. Not an wow, easy field awesome. to play, you know, if I can say so. Um, and the key of G, I mean, and for luck of the Irish, that was, you know, there were like. I think John sang like 38 Beatles songs in G, and I love every one of them. Yeah. I just love I just love the way his voice sounds in G. It's just this, you know it's a guitar key because it involves a lot of the open strings of the guitar. So uh, it's, it's definitely a guitar key, and it's just very suitable for his voice. And it was just I thought uh, I thought it was a, a great uh, job, but uh, the way he connected the Irish feel of the rhythm with the lyrics and the yeah. Irish thing, you know that. It just I uh, thought that was outstanding. Typical Beatle, you know, genius. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, most people might write a song in the look of the Irish in 4-4, four, four, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. and it wouldn't make mm-hmm. any difference. But to write it in an authentic feel of the Irish music, yeah. that that's yeah. not everyone does. That's that, brilliant. Though. It really is. Well, we'll I, just continue in, in this same think. vein. You know, if you don't mind telling us about some of the other songs, just kind of like oh, you're sure. doing, I'm going to let Lena take over here, and let's just go through some of them. So, Lena, take it away. Great. Okay. So, so in no particular order, um, I thought I would start with uh, one of my favorites, and the one that Jude and I think should have been the opening song on the LP, because it it plops the listener down in the center of the action politically and right in the heart of Manhattan. So tell us what, you know, just some of your random thoughts or any memory that you have of the song that um, you go to. And we'll start with the song, of course, New York City. Good choice. (laughs) New York City, I think, we started with Sunday Bloody Sunday. I think Attica State wasn't far behind because that wasn't a real difficult feel to play. But uh, New York City, uh, I think he really wanted to have us warmed up a few days before he went to New York City because he really wanted to rock out on that. And Mm. the night before, I think, uh, you know, I actually got a copy of the lyrics and I don't know whether we had a day off or what happened. I can't remember. But uh, when I saw that he had written in the second verse, you know, going down to Max's Kansas City with the Elephants member band, that's all I needed to hear. (laughs) I mean, here we go. We are immortalized forever. Yes. I mean, yes. You are. You know, did they, does he he ever mention the Beatles in a Beatles lyric? I don't believe in Beatles. (laughs) That's the only time. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You guys are so, so sharp on it. I would never even want to try to compete with you. You guys are That's a huge compliment, a huge compliment to you. And, and <laughs> you know, I, I almost think, you know, I've, I've read, um, and it's a, a lot of things I read and I don't know if they're actually, you know, bona fide truth, but I have read that he always wanted to be wanted the Beatles to be more of a rocking band mm-hmm. like yep. the Rolling Stones were Yep. Um, instead of, you know, um, that clean cut, um, dev, you know, the, the, the clean Beatles that, that they ended up being. And um, so hmm. you were the band he always wanted. Yep. Yeah, well, uh, I have to say that 
guess who showed up at the record plant, to, you know, and they acted like they were young kids together and uh, was uh, none other than Mick Jagger. Uh, and he was he was uh, around for some of the work on New York City, and wow. uh, we really rocked hard because of the you know because our we rocked that's what we did but uh, but yeah. having your name in the in the in the title of of the uh, in the lyrics and it was just uh, New York City was our thing we owned it and that was part of it too uh, you know he had come to see us play at the Anderson Theater. Um, you know, he had he had the Apollo Theater uh, thing for Attica State mm-hmm. uh, that was in the in the Staten Island Ferry. They loved going doing that. The stuff about David Peel, I have to get his name in there. Was you know he met David before he met us and had played with him on the street and ended up producing an album for David. Uh, and then of That's course awesome. there was the Frank Zappa stuff from the Fillmore East, which is the double record of our. The other record on our double record of Sometime in New York City. Um, mm. But that line about coming down to Maxis City with the Elephants member band, that was it for me. You know, and awesome. another cool line that beside is- that is, you know, the great line, I have to say, second, that my favorite is the Statue of Liberty said, come. I mean, that's a heavy line. Yep. Absolutely. For a lot of reasons. Love it. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so... Let's move on to another song that you cannot forget if you listen to it, even for just a few short bars, is uh, John Sinclair. It's a bona fide earworm. (laughs) Tell us who John Sinclair was and why this song was written for him, and and we'd love to know if the song changed anything for Mr. Sinclair. Well, that's good questions. John was a friend that we would meet on the road, uh, he would occasionally come to New York, John Sinclair I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, we knew him, and he loved us, of course, because of our connection through the the political things that were going on between him and Jerry Rubin and Abby Hoffman and this whole thing. John Sinclair was from Flint, Michigan, and he got busted for having two joints. This uh, undercover girl okay. comes along, this young you know, drug enforcement agent and busted him for two joints in 1969. Wow. And it was just really a bummer to hear that kind of stuff. And yeah. uh, he was actually the manager of this might be, uh, you guys aren't old enough to remember the MC5, are you? God bless you yeah. for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> I, <laughs> oh, I know how to do it. <laughs> you are good. You are so good. Uh, anyway, MC5, a Detroit band, he was managed by John Sinclair. So he was involved in the music mm. business. And uh, so they had this big rally. John went out to do this freedom rally for John to try to get him out, out of prison. And everybody showed up. Stevie Wonder and Bob Seger, Phil Oaks. I mean, it was a long list of people that showed up. And it was quite uh, successful and but the government was looking at that as because John was kind of John Sinclair was trying to get uh, a thing called, together called the White Panther Party, kind of the white version of the Black Panther Party, so to speak. But uh, he uh, really enjoyed working with uh, Sinclair on the political stuff, and they had a good friendship. So, but as the result of this thing, this concert, I think it was only like. The following week, they let him out of jail. Woo-hoo! They realized that 
some of the marijuana laws they had there were just really unconstitutional. So he got off on that, and thank God. Yeah, I remember him coming to New York and partying with us for about a week. (laughs) 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 It it, kind of got out of hand. But anyway, anyway, uh, he was a great guy and still is. John Sinclair, and I haven't heard mm. from him in ages, but I think he's on Facebook and the whole deal, you know. Uh, yeah. But later on, actually, you know, it, it meant a lot because later on, some of that stuff, even though they let him out, his case kind of still was around and made it all the way through to the Supreme Court, and I think they won his case in the Supreme Court for, uh, you know, it was like a surveillance kind of thing. Yeah, they, they, mm. they, he was really responsible for. They had they had been watching him illegally and all this stuff. They found out and mm. it was just a mess. But that's good stuff when they do that in the Supreme Court. Yeah, <laughs> you know true. they're going to get their yeah. stuff together. Hmm. So uh, didn't help us in a lot of ways with the FCC. We didn't know <laughs> something else, but <laughs> but that's another story. So yeah. Anyway, John Sinclair's in the key of E, and I got to play with Jim Keltner on drums. Just wow. Jim, not not Mar drummer Rick Frank. Nothing against Rick, but Rick was really a percussionist. And the re- one of the reasons that John brought in Jim was he had been playing with them forever in the, in the Plastic Ono band. He really felt that he needed that nucleus of the strong low end bass and Jim. Mm-hmm. And they let let Rick do all the sweetening, and in other words, symbol overdubs and cassonettes or whatever, cowbell, whatever. Right. So, uh, sure. but that and that worked out great. Uh, the only track I think that both Rick Frank uh, and Jim played together on was Sunday Bloody Sunday when we first started out. I think that John felt he wanted to get Rick, both of them involved right off the bat. So there were two kits on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You can you can hear that pretty plainly. I think there's a ton of drums. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but on John Sinclair, it was just Jim and John and I. That's it. He sent everyone else home, and he was playing mm. that dobro, and you know wow. it was pretty challenging as any musician. Uh, not so much for Jim, I think, because he had played mm. with John a long time. But I was put in a position right. to, and that part of the song where it's going. You got to, got to, got to, got to. Yep. The first time I heard that, I went, oh, no. How many how many got to, got tos are there going to be? <laughs> because you're not reading it, you know. You're just feeling it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, right. And so it was kind of like a telepathy thing, I think, is how I made that through that, or I was watching his wow. body language or whatever. It was very hard to do, I've got to say, but I'm, I'm very happy with the way it turned out and proud right. to have played with uh, just the three of us on that. We were a trio for one night. That's amazing. You had, you had nerves night. of steel. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, th- uh, that was a good one. I liked that one as well. I think uh, Attica State was uh, actually a night before that, but uh, like you said, we're not in any particular order. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, Attica State was pretty uneventful for me. Another one in the, uh, no, no real base challenges in that, and uh, just had to rock it out and do a nice shuffle thing for for John and Yoko. Um, 
another politically though i mean that was that was a horror story you know hmm. 43 people being yeah. killed i mean just uh i know they were inmates yeah. and all but that's souls you know not yet really? woke, woke a lot of people up you know at that time yeah it was pretty yeah. shocking i love that song too i it, all of them. I wish you had never brought up the got to got to part because once I <laughs> once you say that, like for three days now, I'll be you know got to got to got to seven. You just can't get it out of your head. Talk about an earworm, huh? It is. And, yeah. and Attica State, we're all mates with Attica State. I can't stop it when I hear it. <laughs> I oh. appreciate all that. I'm loving it. It's true. I really do love the album. I really do. I I had mixed feelings about a lot of the stuff that happened that year about how it was the reaction to the record and stuff. But you know, after after all this time and, and not soon after, I I realized I don't give a shit what they say. This record is strong and uh, still proud of it. Yeah, yeah, it, it is great. And I'm you've kind of... you guys like it, too. Love, love, we both love it. I mean, really love it. But, and you've kind of already touched on Luck of the Irish and Sunday Bloody Sunday, um, which are on the same theme, but they're really, really different. But when you and I were talking last week, you were talking... We addressed the fact that one of the biggest criticisms about this album is Yoko's singing. And I think if you go back and listen to her singing now, I mean, maybe people did not like Yoko then. I mean, at that point, they were still very anti-Yoko. But if you go back yeah. and listen to it now, it's not that bad, is it? Well, I think, you know, like if you listen to, if you really honestly listen to Angela, the way they worked so hard, you know, to sing so tightly together, and, you know, there's no pitch problem. Yoko is singing, you know. Okay, right. she did her screaming thing. I, you know, I give everybody that, but this wasn't the case on, like, the song Angela or a lot of the stuff they did. She really, John really worked with her, and they got together. And uh, Of course, they were together all the time, so they had a lot of time to work mm -hmm. on it. But, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, all the time. They were never apart. I mean, it yeah. was just unbelievable to see. <clears throat> anyway, but, yeah, you I, know, I think Jude did... was one of my favorites. So, excuse me. Yeah, I'm. I'm sorry to butt in. Jude, Jude had mentioned uh, in an uh, article that she had recently written that she compared Yoko's singing to if Jude and I were singing in church, you know, or or at a concert. We're not really. We're singing from the heart, and we're we're singing to make a statement. We're not in you know professional uh, choir or anything. And and of course, gotcha. she, yeah. she compared compared that to that's how Yoko was performing. You know, she was performing from her heart, which I definitely definitely agree with Jude on that. It must have been hard for you know being thrown into that. You know, at that point, you know, I mean, they were writing songs together, and uh, they were writing, she was writing more than people realized, lyrics to Woman is the Nigger of the World, and, uh, you know, of course, we, we know later on, uh, you know, I, the word I, is that uh, she wrote most of the, of the lyrics to Imagine as well, or some of them, I can't, mm -hmm. maybe we'll never know, but, um, but that's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. A couple pretty cool songs there. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's get down to um, Angela and Sisters O Sisters, which, um, I, I, Lena, when I was working on that article that I'm doing for Beetle Fan, I'm doing this, yeah. this coming issue of Beetle Fan is going to be side one of sometime in New York City. And then in the May-June issue is going to be side two. And so we've been working together on it. And she, she coined the phrase, John and Yoko were awake before we were woke. And I really That's think... That's a good one. Isn't it the truth? I mean, I just was like, yeah. wow, that is so good. Yeah. Because um, I know I was asleep. <laughs> they, they, woke, <laughs> they woke me up. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. I didn't even know about these things until I listened to this LP. And, um, you know, they, they were so fervent, so fervent about women's rights. So tell us about the the great opening track still i think new york city should have opened the lp to put you in the right where you were supposed to be but john loved woman is the nigger of the world so much that he oh. put it first because he wanted people here so what do you remember about it well i think up until that point actually luck of the irish was the single that he, that they chose so that was slated to be the single luck of the irish and for him to back off on that and let the woman go forth is says it all he, he was really had to be crazy about it because he had it all arranged uh, you know with the he had it at the beginning of the reel at the record plan he was he was they they were definitely doing luck of the irish yeah until we finished and he did the strings on woman and then i think that turned him around it just came out so heavy and so good he mm -hmm. was sold you know yeah, a lot of people don't realize that Luck of the Irish was probably the first choice. But hmm. uh, I would have chose New York City, being yeah. a rocker. And, oh, I mentioned my name was in there. Yeah, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> I could be a little prejudiced. But I, anyway. uh, but New York City, is, it's gotten a lot of good things about it and it gets a lot of play and blah 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 so I'm very happy with the way it worked out with New York City anyway <laughs> well before I turn it back to Lena I just want to say one thing on air so that everybody listening to um, this will will know it and that is that John um, approached several leading black groups such as the NAACP, before he released Woman is the Nigger of the World and asked if that term would be offensive and if he should not put it in. And he was told on every occasion that they felt it was the perfect term to use to express how women were being treated, that they truly were treated like denigrated the slave of the slave and when the song came out and everybody vehemently objected to you guys singing or to john singing it objected to it being right. in the record the leader of the black caucus in congress stood up and said there is nothing wrong with this song it perfectly expresses what they were trying to say in their defense of women's rights um it and ebony magazine backed Elephant's Memory Band, Plastic Under Elephant's Memory Band, and John and Yoko for the song. So this is much to do about nothing. It was, the meaning was, as low as you can go, as bad as you can say about someone, as awful as you can denigrate someone, that's how women are being treated. So bravo, Elephant's Memory Band, and bravo, John and Yoko. Thank you so much. I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, boy, you go, girl. 
<laughs> All right, I'm shutting up. Go away. You go. <laughs> Goodness, nobody could have said it better than that. Still, yep, and a lot of I that agree. stuff, and I've heard, Jude, I've heard you say this stuff this before, that a lot of that stuff, you know, all those topics are still around and, and you know, and happening mm-hmm. today. Yeah. You know, it's just as relevant now as it was then. Yeah, you know, yeah. Gonna absolutely. It's going to be 50 years next year. Wow. I know I was just thinking yeah. they should re-release this. I mean, it's, it's, it's as current today as it was then. We're there still dealing with the same crap, and it's yep. unreal. <laughs> there you go. I love that word. So, so, <laughs> so Gary, I did want to ask, so the people were still wanting to hear Beetle John, and this was right. not the Beetle John for sure. And I know John was really disappointed that the LP didn't do well because he had big plans for you guys. Um, yeah. Tell us all about that, if you don't mind. Well, his whole plan, besides doing some time in New York City record, right from the get-go, was to do a world tour. I mean, we talked about it almost every day at every rehearsal. He went Mm -hmm. to a a famous music store on 48th Street in Manhattan called Manny's and basically opened a carte blanche tab. So I ran down and ordered every bass amp known to man. And had him delivered to the studio. And I think we all did that. We were, we were, we just went crazy. I mean, it was like mm-hmm. it was like Christmas every day. I mean, you just could, they wow. oh, they had a new amp come in down there. I got to have it, and I'd have the roadies run down and buy it and bring it to. The, and I would just line them up all in a row and just you know mm-hmm. just play them all at once and just wow. go from one to the mm-hmm. other. It was like it was Christmas morning is the best way I can describe it. But uh, he was really intent on doing a world tour, and we, you know, he was scouting uh, uh, agents, and I think William Morris was uh, trying to get a hold of him for that uh, famous uh, booking agency in mm-hmm. Manhattan, and uh, uh, everything we did, including the the Garden Show, uh, it was in the end of August. He just considered that a, a practice. A, you know, just mm. a practice day for the tour. Wow. So wow. why aren't we going out all this time, you ask? Is because yeah. he couldn't get that damn green card. Yep. He just kept, he just couldn't get it. You know, we, we think we had it solved, and he thought he had it solved, and he'd come in all deflated, to, you know, at the next rehearsal, that it, you know, just fell through again, and then... You know, we wouldn't see him. He'd get depressed, and we wouldn't see them at all for for a week. And we'd think it was something we did. And it turns out they're in Houston looking for Yoko's daughter, who was, like, on the run at that point with Tony Cox, her first husband or second husband. Um, But anyway, um, so it was was kind of a weird time to have to go week to week. You know, we thought, this will be it. Well, here he's got the card, and we're out of here in a month. It wouldn't take us long because we had the sets down and we knew exactly what we were going to do. And uh, so that's what you hear at the mm-hmm. garden concert is basically what you would have heard on the world tour. We would have come <laughs> out and, you know, played that set more or less. We talked him into doing come together at the show it was the only Beatles song he would play. We, t- we wanted to do all kinds of Beatles stuff. And uh, he did all all the solo and the singles, like the solo stuff, like yeah. Cold Turkey and, and that kind of stuff. It was, he was into that, which he should have been. But uh, 
you know, the only Beatles song he would uh, he relented on was uh, "Come Together," and he, it's for me personally that that was the best one because that's such a great bass line. Paul played <laughs> great, great covering that, and what a pleasure! When no bass player would say that was a hard hard order to to fulfill is to play that line for sure. That's so awesome. that's the way it worked well, out with the Beatles stuff. Paul was having a lot of uh, trouble, you know, with. You know, he wanted to do his own stuff too. He wasn't really excited about doing Beatles songs. I think when he first was going sure. out. So uh, you know, they wanted to do their own thing. They didn't. You know, enough of the Beatles thing for now. We're talking 1971 here. I mean, yeah, you can understand yeah. it. It's only a matter of months since you know they sure. packed it in. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah. So, so you did get to do some other things. You mentioned the, the garden concert, and you were also on the Mike Douglas show, which was the hot hot show of the day. Tell us about that. <laughs> oh, cornball Mike, uh, Mike Douglas. What a, what a <laughs> yeah, this, his ascot and so, little scarf. Let, let, me look forward, let me look forward to that 4 o'clock show in the afternoon. <laughs> I to do that every day. And listen to to Mike Douglas come out and sing a, an oldie but moldy. Uh, uh, he uh, he he was a trip. I got to tell you that it was actually early in the year. It was Valentine's Day. We had only been with John a couple of weeks, and hmm. and we got the call if we're doing Mike Douglas for a week yet. Oh, we didn't wow. even have it, so we didn't know what that was going to be. But we you know we got limoed down to. To uh, Philadelphia for it, and uh, I remember when we went down. John was in a white limo, and we were in a black one. And uh, we pulled in first, and there was like a big crowd of like giggly, you know, groupy people, their Beatle fans. And we opened the door to the black limo, and they looked in and saw the elephants and, and screamed, "Oh my God, what's that?" <laughs> quickly ran back to the white limo where they figured out that John would Yoko would be. So. It was a great way to start out. It really makes you feel good when you show up to the gig. <laughs> what is <You> know. that? <laughs> oh. but, uh, so we're standing in the wings, gals, and we're st- uh, the first day on the show, and John and I are standing in the wings, and Mike Douglas had a big band, like a 12-piece band. They were great studio musicians from Philly, played live in the studio, and Mike would come out and sing a song every day. So mm-hmm. just kick off the show. And so we're standing there, and the band starts up, and all of a sudden we hear Mike Douglas singing Michelle. Oh, Lord. And, oh. I, thought, and I thought John was going to hit the ceiling. I mean, he was so pissed. He looked at me and went, friggin' hell. I mean, he was, he was not happy. It was, it was quite a moment I'll never forget. You know, I mean, couldn't have, couldn't have done a little bit more research you know, on, the, on the show there. You know, I mean, John wrote the middle eight, but the point is that, you know, it was considered a Paul song. That oh, yeah. Sure. You know, that was insulting. Gosh. You know? That's uh, definitely out of touch there. They <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. God bless Mike Douglas. <laughs> we did, did uh, Janae, we did, uh, we did uh, the Dick Cavett show after that. Uh, and if we're he is a little more hip. Stuff. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> the problem there being that, that poor Dick Cavett had to come out and do a disclaimer at the beginning of the show about uh, what, that we were going to do the song Woman and uh, is the Nigger. And, 
It was just amazing. I had to stand there and read off a script for like five minutes. ABC made him do that before we were allowed to do that song on the show. I mean, it was just how absurd, you know. But that kind of stuff uh, isn't surprising, even in this day and age. I mean, it only took, uh, I think it was, you know, the song was banned in in a couple of weeks by the FCC. So, hello. Somehow the FCC didn't get the the, the memo from Supreme Court or whatever. Uh, Yeah. It was tough. Nixon was still president. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, but it just still people won't even won't even say the word, and they don't. And yet, last night I was listening to um, on Alexa to the top hits, the uh, today's hits station, and it was in every single song for the twenty minutes that I was up there. But don't let John Lennon say it. If you let John oh, Lennon listen. say it then that's a different thing, you know, like the Beatles a million (laughs) times prior to John's date book thing had said that they were agnostics or and or atheists and never once did they get in trouble but let John Lennon say it. And, you know, I I just, I'm sorry, I'm back on the soapbox again. So (laughs) it really hurt John. It really did. He was, I don't think even he saw it coming that bad. You know, but the way they panned the record and the banning of the of the single, and you should have stuck to luck to the Irish, I guess, luck of the Irish, because uh, at least that wouldn't have got banned. But oh yeah, I the BBC, the BBC banned it. They totally banned it, and they banned. Oh well, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, big <laughs> time. Of course, <laughs> of course. But I don't know whether that would have gotten the same reaction here. I, I won't. Know. I don't know. Just just the thought. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, another exciting performance that you you guys were able to take part in is the one-to-one concert that was hosted by Geraldo Rivera. Can you recall any great moments from that night? Well, well besides playing the bass line to come together, which is a pretty big thrill. <laughs> yeah, uh, man. <laughs> I remember being, I was extremely shocked when I realized that they had given out 25,000 tambourines on the audience. Oh, and my. You think, you think one tambourine is loud. <laughs> 25,000 of them. And that people wonder to this day why that concert was so loud. We had to be loud. <laughs> You'd get covered up for all the tambourines. Everybody had a tambourine. It was wow. just unbelievable. I've never had to deal with anything like that. Thank God the the Madison Square Garden stage is set back. You're like thirty feet back from the from the front row and <clears throat> couldn't see half the people in the audience anyway because of all mm. the T V crews going up on the dollies back and forth. ABC was filming it and there was a private company from that studio I mentioned earlier, Butterfly. They had a had a camera shoot there and uh so it was uh, quite the day. I uh, John gave us a. I remember John slipped uh, me, all of us, a thousand dollars each just to get mm. something to wear for that day. Wow! And in 1972, wow. I'm going. Do you mean for the show or for all you? You know, I mean, a thousand dollars is ridiculous. So when we realized how serious he was and how he really meant it to be stuff we would wear on the tour you know i, I finally figured wow. out what he was talking about so we all went to 
custom clothes makers. And uh, I remember I had a satin suit made uh, and hmm. spent every nickel of that thousand dollars. I still have it hanging in my closet today. Wow! And uh, hmm. just uh, it was a place called Jenny Waterbags down in the village. It was just an unbelievable. You know, they would hmm. just everything was tailored. They didn't have any rack stuff. You went there to have something made for yourself, you know, personally tailored. So that was exciting. Uh, we got held up at the, uh, they put us up at the uh, beautiful hotel across the street so we didn't even have to go home during wow. the day or whatever. A lot of stuff like that. They were great. You know, when we we practiced at the Fillmore East, the old theater, uh, every day for two weeks before that garden show, the one-to-one. And... Uh, John was pretty much a slave driver. He, we ran the set twice a day for two weeks. <laughs> he, you know, come hell or high water, it was, and uh, made a lot of changes. And I think it really built up his confidence. He, I think he needed it, and it was didn't hurt us any either. I mean, but even to the last minute, if you listen to some of his comments through the show, <coughs> excuse me, he's making comments about the arrangements. Because we were still changing arrangements, even till the day of the garden, because he didn't care. I mean, we're still trying out stuff for the world tour. A lot of people didn't get that. Right. And he really felt that that day was a rehearsal. He was not, and that took a lot of the pressure off of him. And, uh, you know, he didn't, he wasn't really thinking about that it's going to be a VHS or, a, you know, because uh, he thought we were eventually going to do the tour. Yeah, and he thought it was going to happen by the fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, just again, he couldn't get that darn green card. Green card. <laughs> so. Well, isn't that the one, the one-to-one concert? Isn't that the one where he had two of everything, two drums? Exactly. Tell tell yes. everybody about that. Well, and uh, to start out, Jim Keltner had joined us from the Plastic Ono band. Uh, joined our Elephant's Memory drummer, so we had two drummers. And it was Wayne Tex Gabriel on guitar, and John would be the second guitar. Uh, we had Adam Ippolito on keys, and, of course, Yoko was playing piano, so that's two keyboard players. So, the, And uh, the only thing that he didn't double was Stan Bronstein, you know, the single sax. And, uh, but he was such a soloist, that made sense even regardless. But he came to me and said, listen, I, we have two of everything in the rhythm section. So I'd like to have two bass players. And I'm, and I'm thinking of asking Noel Redding from Jimi Hendrix's band. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my heart just sank. Excuse me, because I, I mean, I just figured, what the hell? Nobody knows me, and nobody's ever going to know me if, if I don't get some kind of billing on this thing. Noel Redding's going to get all the attention. I mean, then rightfully wow. so. So. I was bummed for a couple of days until I found out that he turned it down, and I was, and then I was excited again. Uh, <laughs> it was just a big deal, you know. I, I figured if I'm going to play the garden, I really want to be the top wow. home show in this rhythm section. So they said you still want to have two bass players, so I suggested that they call their old bass player, who I had left the band just the year before, uh, and had been with them through the whole beginning of the band from 1967 on up to when I joined in 71. So I just recommended that they call him and have him be the second bass player. And it worked out great. He came down from Maine. Uh, the girls in Maine, he was in a commune up there at the time. 
and uh, all the girls in the commune made him this amazing robe, this like this Jesus robe that was all handmade and stuff. <coughs> so he's the guy at the garden in the Jesus robe. I love it. Second base player. I'm in the thousand dollar suit. <laughs> and both of you were walking on water. I'm telling you. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was a great and lo- Gary. Just so you know, anybody that listens to Sunday Bloody Sunday knows that you will be remembered forever. I don't even know what you're talking about, but yeah. you are you are an amazing bass player, and I'm not so much generally into bass players, but you rocked that album, rocked it. And I know that John appreciated everything that you contributed to it because that's what he was looking for was that hard backbeat, and you certainly supplied it, so... Don't don't yeah, think. I'm pretty happy with the way that came out. Thank you again. Yeah, I'm, I can get used to all these compliments. So <laughs> keep them coming. Well, we got to talk about something kind of sad. <laughs> is really how in the end? How did the Plastic Ono Elephants Memory Band part ways? Well, uh, not to get into too much of the nitty gritty, uh, you know, about John and Yoko's <laughs> relationship, but well, let's put it this way: that John had some indiscretions one night and uh, it was after the election and when Nixon took the White House back and we had this party at Jerry Rubin's house and uh, John was a, was not uh, the best of a drinker a lot of times and could get pretty out there and did that night and had some transgressions with the with the a, a young lady there, and, uh, you know, that's pretty much historical, I think. And uh, Yoko kicked him out of the house. So uh, that's how he ended up in L.A. And, uh, and for the time, I thought things were a little weird for a few weeks, but it was Christmas time, so so I didn't think a lot about it. Didn't figure we would be doing heavy rehearsals through that time anyway. And uh, we had already pretty much finished uh, approximately Infinite Universe double album for Yoko. And uh, so it was uh, an interesting time for them. So I got this letter a while later, quite a few months later, and uh, it was after John had went out to L.A. and all the craziness had started out there. And uh, so we were keeping tabs, but we thought he would be back soon. You just didn't know, you know, it was... It's easy to look back now and see what happened, but when it was the time, we were still on uh, retainer from Apple. We were still getting our checks every week for months and months. So we figured, hey, we're still on retainer. He still might get this green card thing together, and we'll still go out. Yeah. But it just just never happened. And uh, I got this beautiful letter from John. It was just so touching. Uh, I wish I would have remembered to... Uh, I'm going to have to paraphrase because it's I I have it framed and I forgot to bring it into my studio here where I, to I was going to actually going to read it word for word but we're, I'm sure we're short on time so I'll just give you a few tidbits. It was just basically to each of us uh, a letter saying that he didn't think that uh, you know he had to do, deal with all this stuff with Apple any day he was going to get the final solution they referred to it as with, you know, I didn't know what we should do with the equipment because the tour is not looking good right now. Should, you know, either 
he's going to have to cover it or Apple's going to come for it or something like that's going to happen. So, and he was concerned about that because he knew we we were making our living off of that gear at that point. You know, if somebody yanked our gear out of from under us, we wouldn't have been able to work. Right. You know, because we had we had discarded all of our old stuff for all the new stuff. So, (laughs) which was all you know, stenciled cases, road cases with Apple records and elephant's memory plastic on a band on them and all that stuff. We were ready, and we were actually going out and doing it. I think I told. Uh, you this Jude in November of that same year we went out to LA and recorded a couple tracks for uh, Yoko's album and did this huge huge concert at uh, LA Coliseum uh, <clears throat> for K Rock mm-hmm. and uh, John and Yoko called in on the PA system and introduced us I thought that was so nice wow. of them they didn't even tell us they were going to do it you know like. Hmm. Keith Moon was the MC. He came out and drag for the concert, and and he wow. announced us and surprised us that John, you know, everybody simmered down. We're going to hear John and Yoko on the loudspeakers, and they did this like one hmm. minute introduction of the band. That was really great of them. That's cool. Uh, they couldn't be there to to do uh, the set from the tour, but. They were, you know, wanted everybody to know who we were and gave us a nice cordial introduction. It was great. So, but it did, what happened to your equipment? Did they come for it or did you get to keep it? Well, I realized, uh, you know, God bless Stan Bronstein and Rick Frank. They were the originators of the band. But toward, as the days and months went by, somehow I became more of, the take charge guy. I don't know why that happened. Uh, and I'm surprised even now that I did that. But when I heard that, I, I went to John Eastman. I made an appointment with John Eastman, Linda's brother, who was at handling a lot of the Apple stuff at the time. So mm-hmm. I went right to his office and went in and said, listen, we haven't been paid for any of the records. We're getting, in, and I was getting flack from 802, the union, yeah. about, you know, where are the, you know, what's going on? You know, you guys, why aren't you getting any checks for it? Where's Apple with the money? They're supposed to pay, you know, they pay percentage on those session fees and stuff. The union gets a small cut. So it was a problem. So I said, you know what? We'll just, let's forget about all the stuff that you owe on the records, and mm-hmm. we'll keep the equipment. Good for you. Good for <laughs> yeah. you. I mean, Good you know, you got to fight for it. You know? Yeah, and you know, John was, he wasn't really in charge of things like that um, because so much was handled by the corporation. And I'll give you oh, another yeah. example. When, when he was assassinated in 80, um, Mimi found out that her house in Poole was not owned by her. She thought she owned it, but it was owned by Apple. And so... Yeah. Yeah, she was scared to death that she was going to get kicked out of her house, but she kind of did the same thing you did and went and sat down and said, look, you know, I thought this was my house. It's been my house for years, so good for you for doing that. Yeah, I mean, you had to stick up for yourself. I mean, we were were too nice to let it go, you know, and if it had been any other artist, we would have went to 802 the very following week and went to the window, and I'd like my checks for... So and so sessions now. I mean, yeah. it was it was a lot of money in those days. You look, but sure. but because I guess because we were on retainer, you know, 
uh, from Apple that we felt like we really couldn't shake, you know, shake the tree too much. Yeah. And but yeah. when it came down, you're going to lose the gear, and uh, mm. you know, we kind of got John out of a pickle too, because uh, you know, I pulled that little stunt, and John didn't have to get involved in that. You know, right? At least he mm-hmm. was nice enough to give us a heads up, you know, on what probably will go down. But anyway, back to the letter, uh, you know, he he didn't think that uh, us parting ways would hurt either one of our careers. I'm quoting him now. You can't you can't keep a good band down. Yeah. An elephant's memory is long but fast. Oh. He was so witty. And so mm-hmm. and it was it was just a great letter, very warm letter with his had his uh, his little stamp on it with his wax yeah. stamp and his signature and it was very cool yeah yeah well i okay so what i'm getting ready to say has absolutely nothing to do with me because i don't get any kickback from any of this stuff or a single penny or anything but i wish that everybody listening would take part in the things that are get ready to come up in the next month and would get out their eight track or their album or their CD or just stream sometime in New York City and give it a second listen. And we've got some things coming up that might be helpful. Number one, um, there's an article I mentioned coming out in Beatle Fan Magazine going track by track through sometime in New York City. First part should be out any day now. Second part coming up in May, June. And with some history and some background and everything that will help people appreciate what was going on in this amazing, amazing LP. And then there's going to be the feature article about you in Culture Sonar, which will be out next month with this interview attached to it so that people can hear you telling the story of how this came to be. It is time to give Sometime in New York City another listen. Um, It is an unafraid, unabashed, album that stands up courageously for good in the world and for kindness in the world and for freedom. And Gary, I know that you're really proud of being such an integral part of it. And Lena and I thank you from our hearts for being here tonight to bring the LP to life. Are you kidding? You guys have been great. Uh, I can't (laughs) wait to try some of those recipes from the 60s cookbook. Heck yeah. Looking forward to that. (laughs) Well, we we are just very very honored to have had the opportunity to listen to all of your stories, Gary. It's it's just so refreshing, and I think people are going to really enjoy hearing um, what you have to say about everything on the album. Plus, I do hope that people will take Jude's recommendation and listen to that album. I had never really listened to it seriously until Jude asked me to a couple of months ago well, maybe were you seven years old and then, uh, well maybe <laughs> but uh, but I enjoyed listening to it so just so Thank much you. thanks to all it, the listeners thanks it, really it, appreciate it it's it, it's just fantastic and so I hope everyone will will take a take a, an evening and jam out with it. It's it's awesome. It's just such an awesome well, thanks for that. movie. Uh, awesome it. album. So Gary, how can people follow you on social media and if you have any other 
formats well, that thanks, you like to thanks for that. connect uh, yeah, with fans. I have, you know, I have a fan page on Facebook, Gary Van Syok fan page. I do okay. a lot of uh, posting on there and kind of keep keeping up with a lot of things, and uh, that's my main thing. But I do have a website, actually. Remember websites? <laughs> yep. uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gary Van Syok. I had one of those. You know, I've got a store on there, so i got to mention it because I sold the Elephant's Memory T-shirts and my latest record, cool. which plug, 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 uh, which is called uh, Pop Goes the Elephant. Woo. My ah. wife, Eva, and I are on the cover, and I'm selling that on there ah. and some Elephant's Memory buttons. And there's a lot of interesting videos and typical website stuff, but it's pretty cool. I'm, I'm pretty proud of the website. It's held up. I've had it pretty much un, unchanged for almost a decade, so... What's the they, name of they did what's a your website? Job. What what w- is your w- website w- handle? www.garyvansyok.com. Great. Well, we really do thank you for for the stories that you've shared tonight, and more importantly, for being a a doer of good in the world, not just a talker. So, um, to Eva, your sweet sweet wife, we send hugs and love and. Gary, thank you for being our hashtag eye candy selection for 2021 on She Said, She Said. You rock, man. My pleasure. Anytime, guys. Thank you so much. You guys have a wonderful evening now, all right? You too. All right, we will. Thank you so much, Gary. Good night. Nice to meet you again. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. So that winds up another amazing show here on She Said, She Said. In just a few weeks, we're going to kick off another fun theme for this year. Last year, our theme was the Beatles family, and Jude and I were so blessed to be able to interview Rogue Best, Angie and Ruth McCartney, Chaz Newby, and John's sister, Julia Baird. Such great, great memories. If you missed these landmark podcasts, you can hear them all on the She Said, She Said show page on Podbean, iTunes, or Spotify, or on the link on our She Said, She Said Facebook page. So this year, our 2021 theme will be the Psychedelic Beatles, and we're going to talk to some of the people who shared the crazy era with the lads between 1966 and 1968, probably minus the LSD, and... We promise to get the scoop on that very colorful time in their careers. So please join us by following our She Said, She Said Facebook page where you'll be able to find out easily what we have in store for you in the exciting months ahead. Until then, here's to food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. ta and shine on.